This is Limit Up, the show where we explore markets, strategies, and trading psychology so that you can take your trading to the next level. So, uh, hello, everybody. Welcome to the Limit Up podcast, a subsidiary of Top Step Trader. I'm Jack Pelzer, joined by Dan Hodgman. Dan, how you doing? I'm good, Jack. How are you? I'm doing just fine. It's been a long day. Uh, just... You're back from the uh, the great outdoors. You've been gone for the last few weeks. I know. I was in Wyoming, then the Upper Peninsula, then the Mitten of Michigan, as they call it. And uh, yeah, it was nice. My first time in the UP. I enjoyed it quite a bit. I love it up there. I love it up there. I think it's a great, great area to go visit. Yeah, everybody go check out the UP. After you check out um, our interview today, is uh, we had a conversation with Gary Morrow, who was actually on the podcast last year, but um, this one was a pretty good conversation. He's the president of Yosemite Asset Management, or uh, Yosemite, as um, our president famously called it. Uh, <laughs> that was great. Doesn't matter what side of the spectrum you're on, that was great. And um, he's also a writer and contributor at This Week on Wall Street, which is his blog. So if you want to check that out. And uh, before we get to the interview... We're recording this on Wednesday, and man, it was a hell of a day on Wall Street. It was a quite, whole week on Wall Street. Quite a doozy. A I went into this week not expecting a whole lot, waiting for the jobs numbers uh, on Friday, and I was long S&Ps. They went and checked overnight highs. I dumped out of my position. I was like, well, I don't expect them to make any regular trading hour highs. I'm going to just be done. And I got out, and like as soon as I got out, thirty seconds later, the thing just took off and rocketed to the moon. So SPs being the strong one today, yeah. where the you know Nasdaq kind of started to slow up a little bit. So it's not in your wheelhouse to just hold uh, S and P trades for fifty points on no particular news. <laughs> no, usually that is in my wheelhouse, but uh, it's not in my wheelhouse when, as of late, they are struggling to make new all-time highs during regular trading hours. They're ma- mostly making those highs in the overnight sessions. Yeah. Um, so that's why I got out. I have a few stats about uh, today's rally. So um, we have now breached the all-time forward 12-month forward PE ratio on the S&P, the all-time high, uh, which is tied. It's right at it right now with the top of the dot-com bubble. And another super interesting thing is, uh, I love to watch the VIX. It's been rallying the last couple of days, and so was the VIX. This is yep. actually the highest that the VIX has ever been at an all-time high in the S&P 500. I am slightly not surprised with, the, with that, with everything going on right now, strictly because there's still... I mean, the dollar's still taking a hit. Granted, the dollar's up the last couple of days, um, but the dollar's down overall. We are awaiting job reports. Who knows what they can be? You know, we started to see jobless claims trending in a better direction, and then they spiked back over a million. Uh, does that mean unemployment's going to be higher this month than last month? I, I'm really, I think everyone's just playing real timidly, real cautious. Low finger volume. on the Finger on the drop it all and dump it um, and get short. Well, shockingly, we saw Tesla get dumped hard today um, on the backs of uh, that they're going to sell at the market um, five, six billion dollars of stock. And then I think some other fund just adjusting their books because Tesla has gone up so much it made up too much. 
Yeah. Well, but, I think also people are going to start selling off because I don't think we've said this before. They're not buying Tesla because of Tesla. They're buying because of Elon Musk. I think he threw some people off by introducing his pig with a, chip, a computer chip in its brain. I think everyone was like, all right, I'm not investing in that anymore. I'm out. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's interesting because I know we talk about Tesla a lot, but that's what's fueling a lot of, you know, there's all this stuff going on with options. As we said, it's sort of a, a low volume melt up where, um, you know, people got to come in and hedge their option books. And there's so much call buying in these names. It's, uh, it's crazy. I, I saw some of those like, Prices yesterday where Apple, if you go $50 off the market either way and six months out, the calls for that price are four times the price of oh, the yeah. puts. They're insane. No one's buying puts. No. No. No yeah. one wants them. You know, I, I just don't have too much more to say <laughs> about it than that. <laughs> so, oh, last thing before we get to the interview, just because, you know, we're talking to the retail traders out there. Something to keep an eye on, you know, this has been calmer markets, though the VIX has been rising, is that the volatility out on around the presidential election is one of the highest sort of expected uh, volatility events. It's not far off, two months away. It's very rare that you kind of know in advance something that'll be that volatile. I mean, usually these things are attacks, wars, you know, disasters that you can't possibly foresee. Right. This one, this one we know is coming. And I can tell you the last election, I was still at the prop firm. That was the best night of my career. Um, but we went, we went totally flat for the first time. And I don't know how long the whole firm was totally flat. Everyone was out of positions because we just didn't know what could happen. And as soon as it started to go, we got the call, open them up and start trading. And gosh, I, I think I traded until three thirty in the morning. I hopped in the Uber, ran to the office. I got there by, you know, four o'clock. Kept going. Um, we were rotating for. I think we didn't. We didn't stop trading for three or four days. It was. Uh, it was a fun. It was a fun time. Yeah. Uh, this one has the possibility to be, perhaps, decidingly less fun. We'll see what happens. <laughs> it could be a real slog. But anyway, um, we digress. There'll be plenty of time to talk about this in the next couple months. Uh, next couple the literal version two months we're just yeah, two literally. months away as of today wow time flies so anyway i think we dive into that a little bit with gary um so why don't we kick it off to him and please everybody out there enjoy our interview with the president of yosemite asset management gary morrow all right everybody after a uh, technological false start a few weeks ago we are joined today by gary morrow who is the president of Yosemite Asset Management and a writer at This Week on Wall Street. Gary, how you doing? I'm doing great. Good to see you guys. Good to see you as well. Yeah, great to have you back. You're in California. Are you near Yosemite? Uh, well, as the crow flies, yes, but a long drive around the Sierra Nevada mountains is probably about a six and a half, seven hour drive. Oh, wow. But a beautiful drive, nonetheless. Um, it, it was always an inspiration for me when I was a kid. It was, you know, so long, so far away growing up in Chicago. And then once we moved to California about 25 years ago, we made sure we made, you know, a number of trips up there. And uh, uh, now I understand why it was so, I don't know, inspiring, invigorating uh, the scenery there just from a distance. Now seeing it up close. Yeah, it's pretty impressive. 
did you watch that free solo documentary? I did watch that free solo documentary and that was fantastic. Having seen El Cap before watching that movie and then watching the movie and going back and looking at El Cap and in my mind kind of retracing the route that he took, uh, I, unbelievable. Yeah, it's one of the most just insane human physical achievements pretty much ever. I think I'm still sweating from that. Yeah. My hand I was just going to say my hand started to sweat after you even I just started thinking about that whole that whole movie. It's unreal. But it says it says a lot huge testament to like mind over matter, just you know, focusing on one step at a time and it kind of cre- relates to trading in a little bit too. Oh, definitely. Not not any room whatsoever for error in in, in what he did and and it yeah, the the amount of courage and focus it would take to do something I can't imagine. <laughs> well, you hit on a point I was going to get to, which is uh, you've been in California for 25 years. But before that, uh, you were from a very much flatter place, uh, Chicago, where you were a trader at the CME. Uh, you were on the show last year, but we were wondering if you could kind of uh, give the listeners a little bit about your background in trading. Sure. Um, I began to become very interested in commodities, maybe probably early on in college. My dad actually had an account, a small account that was trading commodities, and he had and he would show it to me and it had it was all soft commodities. It had beans and cotton and live cattle and all these different things and it was fascinating to me. So when I got to college, my dad suggested that uh, hey, why don't you get a job as a runner down on the floor? of the exchange, one of the exchanges in Chicago. So I tried, I filled out some apps at the Board of Trade as well as the Chicago Mercantile Exchange. Ended up with a runner job at the uh, CME. Uh, This would have been about um, summer between, I think, junior and senior year of college. And I was studying economics, so I was kind of going that direction anyway. And I I instantly fell in love with it. And I was uh, more running orders or, or more based in kind of the financial futures part of the trading floor versus the the commodity, the soft commodity part. So my initial exposure was with foreign currencies and euro dollars and and all those kinds of things. And I was absolutely hooked within the first couple of weeks. I thought, this is what I want to do. But I had some college to finish. And after graduation, I thought, you know, I need to get out there and do some interviewing, which I did. Uh, with some investment banking companies and some brokerage companies and that kind of a thing. And my heart wasn't in it. I would walk out of an interview and I think, ah, just get me on the floor. I just want to be back on the floor. So uh, that's the route I took. I went back on the floor with my with my uh, college complete uh, Bachelor of Arts degree in economics. And I went back as a runner making 150 bucks a week. There's something about starting to run on the floor that creates this pure passion for the industry. I mean, I've been doing it since I was, I started doing it as a little, little kid, but I mean, I remember any chance school was out and dad was going to work. I was begging and pleading to be up with him at 4:45 to get in the car and get down to the floor. Cause there was something about running the cards, grabbing the cards from him in the pit, running them to the trade checkers, running orders around, sneaking a sandwich on the floor. If I had to, putting the jacket on, it creates such a passion. And and here I am to this day, still so attached to this whole industry. There's something about running on the floor, making scraps for money and just loving every second of it. You know, uh, you, you can't replace or um, duplicate that feeling that 
the buzz of the floor when a pit is really rolling. Let's say there's fast market and pork bellies or uh, interest rates were just adjusted and, and the currencies are flying. That roar of all those voices, all that emotion, um, all those orders, the order flow picking up, all those things all combining at once, it's electrifying, totally addicting. It is. It's crazy how different sort of, you know, we talked to people that were on the floor, how different the process of getting involved with trading was where you had, you became a runner first and then that's how you broke into the business. Now it's A, you can just kind of start trading right away, um, which has its own pitfalls. But I also think that it kind of changes, you know, the way mentoring and stuff is done. Um, I can't imagine, I was never on the floor, but I was still in the office on the screens. And I don't know how I would have ever developed without having relationships with the actual people. And I know that you can do it online and there are ways to do it, but um, it's just difficult to replicate the sort of relationships that you build. And uh, that's something I know that our traders now have kind of struggled with. Oh, no question about it. Um, I, I think a lot of us definitely, I personally felt the transition to off the floor trading would be easy. Now, maybe not easy, but it would be doable. And I did that for a while when we first moved out to California. My, my, my first thought was that I would take some time off and when we got here and I would coach the kids, and I'm doing, which I did. But I still wanted to continue to trade. And I realized fairly early on that removing all that emotion from the trading process was super hard to duplicate. You kind of get uh, emotionally dialed in to what's going on in your particular pit. And you understand the panic in other traders' voices. You understand the pitch in order fillers' voices. All these noises and data points that are hitting you all at once you know, help you make your instantaneous trading decision. You sit behind a trading screen and you may have all the graphics in the world going and all the logarithms and all these new charting platforms and whatnot. You can't replace that. And um, that was one of the things that I read when I was on the floor. Um, I really tried to learn early on was how my fellow locals were trading and reacting to positions that they had on, whether they were good or bad, uh, as well as how the order fillers were, especially those that were doing big ARB, um, how uh, intense they appeared to be. And um, that always helped me out. And, you know, you get behind a screen and that's completely gone. Yeah, it's like playing poker. The old way is kind of playing poker closer to the way that you would play poker now. And now it's more like playing poker against a computer. It's not like playing chess against a computer where they're guaranteed to beat you 100% of the time, but it is a different skill set to the people that can read order flow in such a way that it's like they're looking at another person. That's something that very few people, I think, can really gain a grasp of. Um, it's definitely few and far between in my experience. So you were at the uh, CME for 12 years. Were you mostly trading the same product or... Yes, I bounced around a little bit when I first started. I was um, I had a fantastic opportunity shortly after I went back on the floor after graduation. I was given the upside part of the Merrill Lynch Swiss franc deck. So um, I was standing next to a couple of uh, uh, order fillers uh, that uh, one was specifically doing Merrill Lynch. The other was doing some overflow in the downside part of the Merrill Lynch deck. But I had a a big deck, uh, which we had buy stops and sell orders in. 
that got me right up back to back with the traders and the order fillers and the Swiss franc pit. And the Swiss franc pit was super small at that time. And that was a monumental jump for me as far as gaining experience and, and knowledge and making uh, relationships with traders and that kind of a thing. So when the time came for me to start trading, which was probably a little bit less than a year after that, I immediately went right into the Swiss franc pit. That's where um, I knew people, I knew faces, they knew me. Um, shortly after that, I moved over to the Japanese yen for a little while and bounced around a little bit. But when we moved into the new trading floor uh, at the Merck, I moved into the Deutschmark pit. And I stayed there for the rest of my career pretty much. I mean, I, I I would trade just about anything, you know, on paper, easily just go to our desk and, you know, trade that. But as far as standing in the pit and being a local, it was the D mark for you know, 85% of my career on the floor. Yeah. And for the uh, younger people out there, the D mark was pre-Euro. Uh, I don't know. I have to throw that out there sometimes in case there's someone who's 20. Yep. <laughs> That's right. Pre-Euro. Yep. <laughs> uh, so then you headed out to California uh, to slow things down a little bit. Um, but I'd love if you could tell us a little bit about what you started out there. Well, originally when we came out here, um, we had three little ones. We had a, a kindergartner, a second grader, and a fourth grader. And they were um, super busy right off the bat. We didn't know anybody out here. Th this Moving out to San Luis Obispo was really kind of a a stab in the dark. I had a very good friend of mine that had moved to Southern California a few years earlier, recommended San Luis. And we came out and checked it out in March. It was just gorgeous. I said, this is unbelievable. If this can work out, this will be great. And it, it certainly has. But when we first came out, we got our kids going in school and, you know, I'm, I'm dropping the kids off and picking them up. And of course that looks like someone who could be a soccer coach or a basketball coach or whatever. So the phone call started rolling in and I, I never said no. So I spent the first, geez, five to eight years we were here mostly coaching and watching the market and ch doing all my charting. I'm, I'm, I've am i always been really big on, on technical analysis and charts. And, and I learned that from the floor. I had pockets and pockets full of uh, point and figure charts that I just constantly drawing trend lines on. So that carried through. But I wasn't really trading at that time. I just didn't have the focus to do it. Um, eventually, it took a number of years. But some people that I had made acquaintances with, you know, kind of fascinated with the whole futures trading thing. And, of course, there's no, you know, very few people out here that had any experience with that. Um, I was asked if I could, you know, maybe give some advice. What do I think about the stock market? And what do I think about uh, the economy and the dollar and all those kinds of things? And I, I decided that. Um, it's probably wise for me to take my Series 65, which would make me a registered investment advisor. And um, I could help people, you know, maybe manage their portfolios, that kind of a thing. And um, that probably began about 15 years ago or so. And I had a number of uh, small accounts that I managed for, for friends and family, basically. Uh, I didn't really try and expand on that because I was still busy with the kids. But when my last, our last one, kind of went off to college, finished up college. Now we're going back about, that was probably about six or seven years ago. I said, you know what? I've been kind of retired for the last 
15 to 20 years. I, how about applying yourself again, finally? So I created Yosemite Asset Management, and I've been growing that uh, fairly steadily over the years. And I'm also working with um, LifePro Asset Management. Uh, we've, we're doing some great work over there for clients as well. That's more of full service. And uh, all through that time, I was writing. I um, kind of kind of a sidetrack. I went to a hedge fund conference down in Miami, Florida, in 2000. And at that time, uh, my dream was to have a to start a hedge fund, which I did. But I learned early on that there's a reason why most hedge funds start with 10 million dollars versus a little bit of seed capital from you know Uncle Jim and your neighbor and that kind of a thing. Uh, so I kind of scrapped that idea. But the kicker was that I met Jim Cramer put on the um, uh, the seminar, this hedge fund seminar, kind of sponsored it down in, in Florida. And I met him and a number of other guys. And that eventually evolved into my writing career on thestreet.com. I started writing on thestreet.com in 2001, I guess, and wrote fairly consistently for them all the way through 2017. And I loved it. I, I would do uh, a market recap. I would do a number of charts. Um, you know, I, I, I'm looking at stochastics and sentiment and all these other kind of things that are really, really interested in. Were you doing uh, things that were more like summaries or were you including uh, sort of opinion pieces into it? Both. I was doing, uh, I would do individual stock updates um, and I was doing more stock than in some ETFs as well. Really not a whole lot of futures analysis. And um, I would maybe put up a chart of General Motors and, and put my view on it and maybe some uh, parameters of buy and sell levels that I, that I would recommend. And um, that was kind of my wheelhouse uh, as far as my writing with the street.com. And um, that went really well all the way through 17. And then uh, my partner and I decided we would focus more on our own blog, which we have now this week on wallstreet.com and uh, continuing to do technical analysis plus a lot of our own other things that, that we feel are uh, important. And um, that's been building up nicely. We've, we've you know, steadily getting uh, um, more and more views and, you know, we'll see how that turns out. I, I know. Yeah, no, I'd, I'd love to talk about that a little bit. Um, because, uh, well, first off, I was attracted to the name just because it reminded me of uh, one of my earlier memories of getting into finance was, uh, you know, my mom watching uh, Wall Street Week with Louis Rukeyser. My dad did the same thing, and and a typical of Illinois Midwestern folks that never throw anything away. Um, I have a a uh, Louis Rukeyser golf umbrella that my dad had in his golf bag in the mid eighties, <laughs> hanging in my garage. So, yeah, I my dad watched Louis nonstop, and I tell you that. When my when my partner and I first started talking about the blog, and he actually put everything in motion before, um, and we were talking back and forth, he goes, "What do you think of this week on Wall Street as a name for the blog?" I said, "There's no way. Who, how, how could that not be used or taken or protected or whatever?" And uh, I go, "Good luck. Let's go for it." And it was available, and and we, you know, that's that's what we went with. Yeah, that's awesome. I can I can remember it's it's so interesting to see how the way information consumption has changed. Where you know I'm not from a trading family like Dan is, but my mom's pretty savvy, I would say, about the markets. Now she has a lot more ways to sit around and watch CNBC all day. But back then it was just like half an hour a week. 
she would just be like, no one, no one can bother mom. She's in there watching Wall Street Week with the uh, guy that looks like George Washington uh, yeah. telling corny jokes. But <laughs> Louis Rugas was great. So would you say, uh, what is sort of the, um, you know, mission or style of uh, This Week on Wall Street? Do you guys have a particular general point of view you take, or are you just exploring technical analysis? Yeah, it's a lot of technical analysis, no doubt. Um, my partner, Doug, and I both are been charting for since day one. Uh, so we do a lot of that. But also, I, we try and we try and cut through a lot of the noise. Uh, I, I think, you know, when I get on marketwatch.com, I, I, I don't, I try not to go on there a lot. Um, the constant pounding, the fear pounding and, and the, you know, nobody's ever made any money panicking about anything. And they certainly seem to enjoy or, or, or thrive on creating that type of situation with a lot of their readers. And I, I think they do that on CNBC or whatever as well. And that's fine. That's attracting eyeballs. But um, we try and focus on the long run, um, try and focus on, you know, the underlying currents that are there and not so much on the intraday stuff or the, or the, the daily stuff that, you know, you think, oh, my God, let's sell everything. I mean, this is this is this is you know just ridiculous. And prime example of that for Doug, which confirmed that uh, with Doug and I, my partner and I, um, I will never forget reading that article from Paul Krugman the day of the election in 2016, where it, the guy's got five and a half million followers, and he said it's over, it's over. Here's a guy who's a Nobel Prize winner in economics telling everybody that. It's over. I, I don't know when we're ever going to recover from this. Uh, I that still floors me that someone that well educated in economics would think that. Yeah. Well, anyway, we try and stay away from those extremes. Try and keep people on a, a, a nice level track with our info, uh, our clients. Um, the same. We are we are bulls. I'm always I'm, I'm the the market uh, has its hiccups. It will have corrections. We'll have panic selling. They'll always turn out to be fantastic buying opportunities. Um, that's been the case forever. I, I was on the floor during the 1987 crash. Um, I had buddies in the S and P 500 index futures trading. Uh, at that point, the S and P 500 futures and the currencies were on the same floor. Um, the roar coming out of there, watching that 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 those few days transpire, I'll never forget it. But I I, I think going back, I mean, I was a young person back then, uh, and of course it affected me like it did everybody else for sure. But man, oh man, I wish I had a bunch of cash on the sidelines to take advantage of of those t that type of a panic situation. Um, fortunately, during this most recent uh, crash here that we had. I had a lot of client cash on the sidelines and we took advantage. I think what you're saying is like, I like that. I was reading an article today. I forget. It was from one of the big hedge fund guys. It was about the, the 10 um, like piece of advice or mistakes that he sees rookie traders make or, or just traders in general is that, um, you know, people don't plan for disaster or anything else until it's already happening. And then they panic and that's the wrong time to do it. And I, I think what you're saying there 
is kind of encapsulates what we see happening now, where if you have too much of a point of view, uh, you you mentioned Paul Krugman, um, you know, he, he has, agree with him or not, he has a point of view that is going to shade the way that he looks at things. And I think that if you're going to be successful, you have to be kind of flexible with how you'll look at the market. Right. And without a doubt, oh Dan, you please think about it. Just you think about it. This day and in, in this day and age, there are so many avenues where people are trying to create that following, and they are trying to get those catchphrases out there and be heard. But trading is a very simple, methodical process. Major indices they have one job, and that's to go higher. And there are always going to be dips. We're going to see time and time again the market's going to sell off, and like you said, it's a panic, but. That's where where wealth starts to get created. And if you follow guys like Warren Buffett, who's talking, well, I'm long cash as the market goes on the highs. The thing breaks. And now he's cash poor. I mean, for Warren Buffett. He's doing all right. <laughs> it creates these opportunities. And I'm 100% with you in this concept of I'm a long-term bull, always have been. I think that's where these markets are. They're designed to go one way. If we go back 70 years there's very small few blips where it breaks on us. And those are big long-term investment opportunities. For our younger clients, I've got a, a, and not me originally, um, I tell them embrace the decline. When you see the markets lower, you've got the greatest tool that anybody could possibly have for generating wealth. It's called time. You're 30 years old. You're making a nice living. You've got a nice little core um, retirement building totally ignore all the noise. Ignore it all. And by the time you're age 65, and if you've continued down this path, and every time the market has declined, you embraced it, you're going to be a very, very wealthy person. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's really, there's only one side to it, because to people that are uh, perma bears, it's, you got to think that if you do get one of these situations that completely wipes out the stock market, it's not going to matter anyway, you know. <laughs> You're not going to have money to collect. We'll all be <laughs> right exactly. living in the woods. Exactly. So yeah, something to keep in the back of your mind. So you're way into technical analysis over there. Do you still look at the same indicators that you would look at earlier in your career, or have you changed or kind of stayed on the same thesis? It hasn't changed much. Um, price is the ultimate indicator. Um, I, I still like to watch volume. And I've always been a big guy with moving averages. And I try and keep my charts pretty simple. Um, I, I focus on entry, refining entry points, exits take care of themselves. I don't worry about when I, where I'm going to get out. I have targets and use targets, but um, I use moving averages, price action, volume. Um, we do a lot of trend lines, those kinds of things to help find support and resistance areas. And I try and keep it simple. I, I focus on mad longs and mad shorts. And if I'm long and I've, I've taken some pain, um, where am I going to get out? Where, where are the levels that I'm going to get out? And I think of, I don't think of big institutional people that are, um, filling insurance company or, you know, giant management company, uh, portfolios with stocks. I don't regard them as really good traders. Uh, they execute orders. So um, I feel like I can get an edge from a trading perspective um, simply by watching price a- action, um, seeing where, you know, uh, uh, there was a, a large 
sign of accumulation going on at a certain level a month ago following a short-term sell-off. Well, it's very likely those same institutional people are going to come back in for that stock now that it's back to those levels. They want to keep their, you know, their their entry level to be, you know, close to the where they started the position. So those are definitely factors for me, but my if I I the first thing I used to do when I was when I even when I was running on the floor is I would get the monthly or the weekly that might have been a bi-weekly book of charts, the giant black and white book of daily charts. And I would update them with my little protractor and I'd put my little, and if my hands were sweaty, I'd smear all the lead and the ink would just, is a mess. The charts I use now do not look that different than back then, except for they're on my computer screen and they have some color. Um, and uh, <laughs> uh, But, you know, volume bars and moving average convergence divergence and moving averages and on the on the chart themselves and still pretty still pretty simple are you still looking at very similar markets or are you still focused on some of these ETFs and kind of expanded certainly more on the ETFs um, I have and I'll tell you what I what I've used quite a bit um, over the last 10 years that have, have helped returns quite a bit are the inverse ETFs I actually am kind of fiddling with uh, uh, the SDS right now, which is the uh, double inverse of the S&P 500 index. Um, looks like we're a little bit maybe, you know, doing a little double top action here with the SPX. So it's a short term hedge for me. I'm not going to sell any stocks that I own. I'm not going to, you know, pull any cash out. I want to stick with what I have, but I'm using some of that small cash to build up a nice little hedge uh, in the SDS. So the SDS, the DXD, the QID, those are all inverse for the you know the major index indexes, the S&P 500, the Dow, and the um, and the Nasdaq 100, and then the inverse in the bonds, um, the TBT and the TBF, very liquid, uh, not investing vehicles. These are trading vehicles. These are hedging vehicles. I, I don't, you know, time and all these other factors will destroy your position in these if you hold them for you know, a month and you're... Yeah, they, they are funky products for the people out there. They're funky products. Mm-hmm. But um, they, if if timed right, if if used properly with, um, you know, really low, keep your risk parameters low, they can, they can certainly add a little zip to a portfolio. There, there's an inverse for gold. Um, so there's a number of those that I use. So uh, individual stocks, I try and focus on the best of the best. You know, the S&P 500... There's 400 stocks in the S&P 500 that are crap, that have been crap since the March low. Invest in the best, forget the rest is kind of what how, how we focus. Uh, and that takes work. That takes a lot of analysis and, and I, I, watching the, the moves technically and, and watching how that in particular those industries move, pick the best stocks in those particular industries. Software um, doing fantastic today. Salesforce. Adobe, a number of those names have been doing great. They continue to. So it's not a secret. I mean, um, tech has done by far the best, but there's a whole lot of crap to ignore. And I try to keep that number really high. Yeah. Yeah. So we have, obviously we have a lot of traders new, been at this for a long time. And I think something that a lot of the newer traders get in here, and I'd love to get your opinion on this, is they come in and they start to branch out into a whole bunch of different products that they're getting into. Um, obviously when you're starting into a new product, 
what kind of time frame are you looking at to start actually executing in that as opposed to just opening up that chart and say, all right, well, came down to my 50-day moving average here. I'm just going to buy that because that looks a good place to enter. I mean, it takes a lot more than that, right? Oh, no question. And it's all about um, it's all about gaining enough confidence and, and having you – know, it better be – your trading money better be money that if you got cleaned out tomorrow, it would not affect your lifestyle. Yep. It's not going to affect your ability to pay a bill. I mean, that's what your trading capital should be considered. And uh, once you get to that point, you gain a little confidence. It, it's so commissions are nothing. Um, it's easy to put stops in, in the market. Um, when, when I, even now, when I trade now, I know what my risk parameters are before I even initiate that position. Um, I use hard stops, usually stop close only. Uh, my, my trading activity is usually the e- ETFs. So I know what my, my risk is if I'm dead wrong on that position. And that's where that's, that's a known for me, uh, upside. I, I'll let that run. They did that takes care of themselves. But, um, as long as you manage your risk properly and you can start out really small, obviously these days with slices and, you know, all these other, uh, type of hybrid things that you can do in individual stocks. Uh, fantastic way to learn. Fantastic way to get your feet wet without really putting a lot of capital at risk. Absolutely. You made a point there that kind of reminds me of something when I first started. You were just saying, as long as you can manage your risk, and that's the most important thing. I remember when I first started and I was picking brains of everyone I could find. And I had one guy, I asked one guy, I go, well, what do you do when you're struggling? You know, buy or sell, you know, the market's going to go, you, you got a 50, 50 chance. And the guy goes, exactly. Flip a coin. If you manage your risk, you can probably make money by flipping a coin. And I kind of chuckle. I was like, well, that sounds like BS. And the more you think about it, the more it made more sense to me. And the more and more time I thought of it, I took this concept of having that bias away from it. And now every execution is, well, first off, Where's my risk? That's the first question. Yep. And can I be cheaper on the long side versus the short side? Maybe I can because I'm a levels trader. I trade off of levels and volume. And it's for me, that's been the biggest thing. Yeah. Well, it's just managing the risk, managing the risk, keeping your losses small. I mean, you can, I could withstand a whole lot of seven, eight, nine percent losses in a row on a number of positions. Uh, I'm going to have a number of 50%, 100% winners if I'm entering at the proper levels and I'm and I'm moving up my stop and 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 levels are being taken out and on the floor as well as now my best trades my best positions were when I was confident enough in my initial entry that I would add as the position went my way I was using the casino's money to add to my position and those are always the best trades for me. And that's true even with what I'm doing now away from the floor. And I, I always worked in thirds. I'd start with a third. I'd increase it by another third. By a final third, I'd have a, my full position. And as I exited, I would exit in thirds. Unless, of course, I got stopped out. And of course, you're, yeah, I'm, I'm de- I've been dead wrong on some things. But uh, that piecemealing in, piecemealing out, very focused on risk parameters on what my losses could be at a maximum. Um, I think you can go a long way. I, I think 
along while this is developing, you can fine tune your your trading process, and you can fine tune your emotions. Um, I mean, it, emotion obviously is a huge part of this this whole equation. And if you don't have control of that, that's when you need to shut the computer down and go for a hike. Yeah, or or take the day off, or you know, back in the day, it was just uh, uh, if I had a morning in the pit that I was struggling. That just meant I'd have to leave the floor and go have breakfast. Oh yeah. I mean, I, I get away. I had to clear clear the slate. You know, there's some funky things going on right now. I'm not in tune, and walk away. And you can you can do that from the computer too. Yeah, that's good advice there. I like how you have a defined way that you get in and get out every time, instead of just sort of like arbitrarily adding a little, taking a little off, stuff like that. And you're right. Knowing when to step away is just the most important part. Yep. So. Uh, Kenny Rogers said it best. Got to know when to fold. That's right. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, Walk away and hit it here. <laughs> well, Gary, thanks so much for joining us today. Um, where can people check you out? Uh, this week on WallStreet.com? This week on WallStreet.com is our blog. Um, and uh, we try and keep that uh, rather vibrant and fresh. Um, you'll see a lot of charts on there um, and, uh, well, and other information as well. Um, I love jet aircraft. So if you like F-16s and F-14s and those kinds of things, you'll see some of those pictures pop up every once in a while. I used to work on F-18s. Uh, I was part of the F-35 squadron when we launched and uh, I worked in the Blue Angels for a year. Wow, that's fantastic. I- my addiction to to jet aircraft, in particular, you know, small jets, fighter jets, that kind of a thing, came from a Blue Angel show uh, in Chicago. I don't know, thirty years ago, and that roar, the precision overhead, uh, just can't be replaced. So we've been, it's it's been a few years, but we've been going up to Fleet Week up in San Francisco um, and uh, watching that, and oh, just. Fantastic. Anyway, <laughs> sometimes there's photos of that on there mixed in with with actual economic, you know, sensitive things. Oh, I love it. Technical analysis and jets. Can't can't miss right. that one. Right up my alley as well. Well, Gary, thanks so much for stopping <laughs> by again. And uh, everyone else out there, we'll see you right after that sound effect. Thanks, everybody, for making it to the end of the Limit Up podcast. We hope you found it delightful. Uh, we hope you found it inspiring uh I'm trying to think of some other keyword adjectives that you should have googled this uh the synonyms for exciting um <laughs> we hope we sat down <laughs> we hope this is the kind of uh, show you come to where you came in as one person and you leave as a new person a better person <laughs> <laughs> no we don't <laughs> <laughs> i've been i've been watching the um my my wife's brother aka my brother-in-law is uh one of the editors for the uh, that new HBO series, The Vow, about uh, Nexium. Have you heard about that? I have not. So I've been hearing about it for a whole year, but I didn't really look into it. And the first two episodes are out. And it's about these uh, this kind of cult of personality of all this new agey stuff. And I just found it super interesting because it, it reminded me of some people you see in like the trading education world. <laughs> <laughs> like, you're nothing without me. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah, so definitely everybody out there, uh, it's interesting, so check out The Vow, and uh, <laughs> it's almost the weekend, so you'll have time to do that. Long weekend. Dan, what It you is got? long weekend. Um, last weekend of the summer, I'm looking forward to it. 
um, it'll be a standard work weekend for me. Family, friends, boats, lake, and uh, some ice cold Miller Lights. That is what I am looking to do as well. I'll I'll be in New Buffalo this weekend, so I'm going back to Michigan. Back to Michigan. So uh, yeah, should be fun. Awesome, everyone out there. I hope you're having just as stimulating and eventful as weekends as we are. <laughs> uh, we'll be back next week with a brand new interview and um, a brand new high in the S and P 500. I'll just call it now. <laughs> you're gonna call it. You're calling a new high. Yeah. All right. All right. All right, we'll see you then. uh, I like where you're going with that. Yeah, I've turned. All right, we'll see everybody then. Uh, Until we see you, namaste and trade well. The Limit Up Podcast is produced by Dante32. Futures and Forex trading contain substantial risk and is not for every investor. An investor could potentially lose all or more than their initial investment. Risk capital is money that can be lost without jeopardizing one's financial security or lifestyle. Only risk capital should be used for trading, and only those with sufficient risk capital should consider trading. Past performance is not necessarily indicative of future results.